Hey, welcome to the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm your host, Howie Jacobson. My day job is as a coach, helping people live better lives. I coach executives and leaders. I coach entrepreneurs and I coach civilians who are looking to improve their lives, their health, their relationships. Basically, it allows me to do what I didn't think was possible, which is to help people completely erase bad habits and different ways of being, erase negative feelings and replace them with positive ones rather than just help people develop new strategies to compete with the old ones or new thought patterns to debate the old thought patterns. And I'm looking for people to work with. And I have reduced my rates a lot so that I can just get as much practice in as I can. So I am going to raise them back up to my normal fees. But right now I just need a lot, a lot of practice and feedback and I have teachers and mentors. So if you're interested in getting my best coaching better than I've ever done at a big discount, email me hj at plantyourself.com. So let's get on with the show. Okay, Mama Kai Sanders returns to the podcast today. She was on four episodes ago, episode 562, talking about helping the unhoused and the homeless move from poverty to prosperity. And there was so much that we didn't get to unpack that I invited Mama Kai back and she graciously agreed. The audio and video is better. She was able to um, come to us from a place that she was staying up in the mountains of North Carolina with much better internet. And we got into a lot of deeper conversations. So if you are interested in helping the world become a more just, abundant, happy, joyful place, if you're interested in helping people move out of trauma and into nurturing community, I think this will be a really useful, important, inspiring, beautiful conversation to pay attention to. So without further ado, Mama Kai, welcome back to the Plant Yourself Thank Podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, we are going to cover something that we just touched on in our last conversation, which was only a couple of weeks ago. Um, and so but, but um, let's sort of do a brief recap just for folks who hadn't managed to listen to the other one. Um, so can you just in- introduce yourself and say what, what yeah, you're about? Absolutely. Thank you. Um, well, first of all, it's another amazing day in paradise. Um, my name, my given name is Kara Lynn Sanders. That's K-A-R-A. <laughs> um, my nickname that I've had all my life is Kai, but my super Shiro name, which is what I say is Mama Kai, because I found my superpowers being the mom of a young black male superhero and the name God gave him when I was pregnant is wisdom and he's seven and a half he's my heart beating outside of me and he is the most incredible gift um he's given me my dream career of being a mom he really has um and we have been without stable housing for the last four years and so we've been on this mission to eliminate homelessness poverty and the next generation of prisoners from this personal level to the systemic level to the systems level and um it's been this beautiful terrible amazing um adventure is what i call it because it has been so i'm just grateful to be here and and grateful to share how i how we plan to do that all right yeah and i'm definitely want to encourage people to go back um a couple episodes 
before. I'm, I'm, I didn't write down the number. I'm blanking on it at the moment. I don't want to go look it up and take us out of this conversation, but it's in the 560s. Um, and what we touched on a little bit, we, we talked about your, your story and your experiences, um, but you'd mentioned one, one of the, uh, the, the policies and, and strategies that you're looking at is something called homesteading which I had not heard before in regard to housing. Um, you know, basically what I hear from like policy is, well, the problem is that there's a shortage. There's not enough housing. There's too many people. So we need to build houses. We need to relax um, zoning regulations. We need, you know, we just need a bigger stock of houses. Um, you know, like everybody I know who has, who bought a house and sold it for more money is very happy. And that's supposed to be like the American dream. And I just read an article that pointed out that in every other arena of the economy, that would be called inflation and it would be bad. All right. So, so there's, all the, there's all these sort of systemic policy and economic and financial and zoning um, issues related to whether housing is available and affordable. And then you come along and you're talking about a form of, of housing and living that's that's like so alternative and hippie and off the grid that my that my mind just you know does a three sixty and it goes wait what's what's the connection so maybe you could start yeah there. oh my goodness I would love to so um, I just have my interest has been in architecture since I was young but I never really pursued it. Um, and I can't necessarily tell you why. Like when I went to, when I originally graduated from high school, I thought I was good at numbers. So I went into, a, I tried to go into accounting, which was not fun. And so it has taken me a long mm. time to come back around kind of full circle to where my passion lies. And I found it because I love HGTV. I love home renovation shows and different things of that nature. Um, but it was last year. Um, and I mentioned this pre in our previous interview, it was watching the movie, The Need to Grow. Um, by Earth Conscious Films mm -hmm. that really got me thinking about how we can make food more accessible to people. And if we can make food more accessible to people, then we can make housing more accessible to people. If we, if we can make food more accessible to people then we, and we include housing, then we can help people become food and housing secure. So I was like, okay, how can this happen? And one of the things that... um I, that drew me to creating homesteads, especially within the city limits, is there was a city council meeting that I attended, and they have this um, this ordinance that's called a public nuisance, and there was a property that was up for public nuisance, which meant that the property wasn't livable. They had deemed the property unlivable. There were people living in it, and they wanted to condemn the property. That was basically how they went mm. and they wouldn't do it because it was affordable to the people who were living there. And so they had to figure out where they were going to transition to before the city council would vote to have it to have it condemned. And so I was like, well, let me go check out this property, you know. And um, on the flip side of that, there was another property that was up for rezoning. They wanted to take it from. Um, where it was to do up to seven heights and somebody had spoken in opposition to it. And there were seven different, I think it was seven different houses on this property. And I was like, well, I wonder if we could just move those houses to this other property 
and save those houses instead of destroying them because they're, I mean, they were, they're historical, they're beautifully built, you know, and I was just like, we've got to do something besides continue to let gentrification and, you know, and, and monopolizing, you know, this industry continue. So I went up to the property um, that was up for public nuisance and literally you start walking down the street and it goes from a paved road to a dirt road in Raleigh off a major intersection and off a major like through throughway. And I was like, how is this even possible? You know, like, I thought, you know, this is not like, this is like within the city limits, you know, it doesn't need to be annexed, which means that it needs to be brought in to have to tap into like, you know, traditional power sources and stuff. I'm like, this land is beautiful. And it there turns out there's like, it's like an oasis of, of woodland back there. And I was like, hmm. what in the world? There's another property was owned by somebody else and it's all wooded. And it has to be like five or six acres. And I was like, there was another acre that there's another piece that's owned by somebody else. And it was um, the way it's it's it was it's on a hill. And I was like, wow, I, you, this could be a huge community garden. And my mind just started going crazy. And I'm just like, this could totally be a homestead. You know, we could put families here. And because of, of the street that it's along, they're trying to turn that into what, to what they call bus rapid transit. So when you're talking about the zoning and everything like that as a housing problem, this is like, I'm, I'm like, I was like, yes, absolutely. That's part of the problem. The other problem is people qualifying now with so many different um, rules and regulations that people no longer qualify for, such as evictions and, um, and just the price of, you know, putting together a first and last month's rent and the first, you know, and all that in the security deposit, you know? And so, um, I was like, I'm like, okay, condemn the houses. They're no good, but what can we put here? And because this particular property is not far from where they have a proposed BRT, it could have a tiny home plus two accessory dwelling units, which would mean BRT is bus rapid transit. BRT is bus rapid transit. So what they're trying to do is put a bus line that runs like every 10 minutes has limited stops, but they're at major you know, it's at major places. The stops are, are going to be very calculated mm -hmm. as to where they'll be. And so um, I was like, this isn't, I'm like, there, when I went to look up the, the property, the initial property, even though there were like five structures on it, it was actually has, it has already been zoned to be 10 different lots. And I was like, well, why doesn't the city just partner with this landowner put a tiny home and two accessory dwelling units because since it's along the BRT, it can have up to two. I'm like, that's 30 homes right there. You know, I was like, what in the world? And then you can create, they can have private gardens. They can create a community garden that they keep together. And I said, but the thing is that what most people don't think about is that it's not just about housing because there are plenty of places that I go by that are like, come home now, rent here, they have places. It's just not affordable to people. And so mm -hmm. one of the one of the components for me is how do we move people from poverty to prosperity? And that really is an internal work as well as an external work. And as I was speaking about before, in growing these gardens, what I would love to see is a program called How Does Your Garden Grow? So people can not just learn how to plant and grow their own food but they learn how their minds grew, how their brains grew 
and then have the opportunity to redevelop that garden where they weed out mm. and they take things out. So off grid, um, when you're looking at a homestead, it's you're talking rain, water catch, rain catchment systems or solar panels. And that's where like a need to grow came in because a need to grow, grow has this concept called the green powerhouse. And you, it's like, I think it's like 10,000 square feet, but it can grow up to, I believe a half an acre of food. It is, it produces biochar, which I'm still not sure what it is. I need to look more into that, but it's zero waste, zero yeah. emissions, and it can power up to a hundred homes. So you're talking about knocking out electricity bills, minimizing rental costs for people because it's a smaller structure and putting people in a space where they're connecting with nature and they're connecting with themselves and learning about themselves so they can literally read this. They can discover who they really are and what they were really meant to do. And so when you're in nature, like we are blessed to be for this, for this short period of time, it does something to you that most people don't realize because we spend so little time out in it. So Hmm. I'll pause there. Great. So, yeah, there's a, yeah. there's a lot. So, so I'm curious. I'm trying to picture the property that was um, condemned as a public mm -hmm. nuisance, in, you know, in Raleigh. Um, I'm picturing sort of down around where the interfaith food shuttle Ooh. is. There's like, you know, there's there's urban mm -hmm. streets, and then it's sort of it looks like like just sort of like the money mm -hmm. ran yeah. out, and <laughs> it's just. You know, like for something like no one's figured out how to make money off of this land that's sort of sitting there. Um, who like what were the considerations that went into condemning it? Was it like neighbors who are like, well, this is lowering our property values or was there, you know, a, a, a heating oil tank that was improperly like what were the concerns? Well, I'm not quite sure who um, made who who made the call. But what it was is that the properties, like there were holes in the, the, even like the toilet wasn't sitting on a solid surface. Like the boards were rotting. Um, there were holes in the side of the home, you know, where animals could easily get in mm. and things of that nature. And it just wasn't suitable for living. Like when you go up there, you look at those houses, you're like, yeah, there was already one that was deteriorating that there weren't people living in but the other two you could see from the outside how it would be uncomfortable to have um people living in them you know and and pay rent you know mm -hmm. uh-huh so it was like the, there was there was an absentee landlord who who was making making money off of people who were for whom this was the only thing their only I option. think I don't think the landlord was absent. I think he just didn't know what to do because he couldn't really do any repairs when the people were in there. But the people really didn't uh -huh. have the people really didn't have um, the resources to go anywhere else. And so they were settling for what they could get. And from, according to the landlord, um, he was he wasn't receiving any payments for one of the for one of the homes. So they had lived in there since mm -hmm. the pandemic and it wasn't, it wasn't anything that he could do while people were living in there. But again, they had nowhere to go. So it was kind of mm -hmm. like a catch 22 sure. for both the renters and the property owner. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Right. It seems it's one of these sort of like there's an equilibrium where nobody can move forward. And there was like it wouldn't have taken much in the way of sort of a systemic response to like, you know, move them into temporary housing, get funding to repair it. And then you've got a sort of a functioning financial ecosystem that can benefit multiple parties. But but there's no there's no means of doing that. There's uh, there's just sort of condemn it and put it for sale and someone's going to come raise it. And God knows what they're going to put there next. Maybe a, like a motocross track right. or some some neighborhood nuisance, a shooting right. range. Right. right. Yeah. And that's, uh, you know, like the when asked what he would do with the property, because it's it's not a small property. It's two point three, three acres when I looked it up. So it's a pretty large area. Mm-hmm. And like I said, it was originally zoned for 10 lots and there were only there's two homes that are still on it that are look like that, that people are living in that are in decent condition. But the other three, definitely they were in significant need of repair. Um and the owner even said that he wasn't sure what he was going to do just yet. So he wasn't sure if he was going to mm-hmm. go in and and do some renovations, which would be extensive and costly. Um, and with it being on a dirt road, you know, that also, you know, even if it's close to things, there's not any guarantee that people are going to want to bring their, you know, their vehicles onto a dirt road every day, you know. And so there was kind of a lot of, complications that I could see that he was facing to get it to where it was market value. If if it was a paved road, I could see that he would quickly renovate, turn it around and he could rent it for three times what he was getting, you know, and recoup his money within a year, you know, yeah. any money he lost. Yeah. But again, there, like you were saying that move into temporary housing, help with renovations, keep people housing secure. And there's just nothing in our government, at least in Raleigh that, that helps that allows for that, you know, where there is that, um, as a, as an option, which is, which is heartbreaking. Yeah. It reminds me, uh, many years back, I was living in a co-housing community in Durham and co, you know, it was, uh, affordable, right. And especially, you know, smaller houses, uh, very close together, um, with a, like 11 houses on 22 acres, but, the houses were were on, on a pedestrian walkway with room around and room for parking. And it was such a good model. And especially like the other neighborhoods were like, you know, five hundred, six hundred thousand dollar homes. And ours were in the, you know, low two hundreds, high one eighties and you know, at that point. And there was a, a move to like, let's double this. And there was this whole area, wooded area that was kind of scrub. It wasn't like, you know, pristine old growth. But a group of people were said like, "Hey, we can we can make you know we can make this happen," and they hired architects and, and things were really moving along and they had interest. And then they discovered one uh, one of the um, ordinances was the the road had to be wide enough for a fire truck to turn around, mm-hmm. and it was going to cost them over a million dollars just to ask to create the asphalt road. And the way the neighborhood was, was that there was a circle at the top. It was a very thin one lane road, but you could have a circle, but like that wasn't going to cut it. They, you know, they needed, they needed a, a large two lanes, at least 15, 20 feet across. And so it was financially unviable. It would ended up have, have, having cost as much as the other 
homes. It just seems like there's, um, you know, regulations that are put in place to protect people from the worst also seem to prevent the best. I would 100% agree with you. The whole concept of ADUs or accessory dwelling units has been language that has been written into um, the UDO or what they call the Unified Development Ordinance here in Raleigh. And so that was supposed to be able to increase density. But in doing that, the owners of the property actually have to put in plumbing and electrical that has to be separate from their home in order to build it and Mm. rent it. And so instead of being able to buy an already built tiny home that can run anywhere from twenty to forty thousand dollars, I mean luxury, you know, they have all these kits nowadays where you can build a you can take a, a shed you can buy a shed and turn it into a tiny home for, you know, less than ten thousand dollars, put a rain catchment system on it, solar panel, and call it done and rent it. You can't do that. <clears throat> so even though they've created this to create density only people who can afford that initial $40,000 investment to get the trench dug for sewer lines to be put in and, you know, the electrical to be put in and stuff like that can afford it. So it's not being done. So it's another example of, okay, you've done this regulation that will help increase density, but you've also ma- minimized it, minimized the, uh, the, uh, the impact it could have by putting all these other um, restrictions on it including like design, they have, um, they had like what they call fast track. Um, and that's where they've already, where some architects have already submitted designs and you can pay for the already made designs to be able to build, be built, you know? And it's like, you know, sometimes it would just be nice if we could put people in homes without all the rigmarole that's, you know, that's around it. Um, so they make it really, really, it's been really, really challenging. And for some of that, it's not even just at the city level. It goes all the way up to the state level of what the state has deemed can and cannot be done. Um, and so it's been <clears throat> it's been an interesting journey to just realize, like, what has to be broken apart or dismantled or changed just to create change, you know, before other change mm-hmm. can even be implemented. Do, do you have a sense of how much of this, the, the obstacle ordinances are, or, you know, basically good, you know, goodwill intentioned things that are just that people aren't seeing and how much is let's keep poor people out of our neighborhood? Ooh, NIMBY, not in my backyard. <laughs> That's what they call it here. <laughs> Um, I think it is a little bit of both. Like when I saw the um, fast track designs for the ADUs, I was like, like, it seemed really bougie. Like, you know, you can only have a certain style and design, you know, in, in people's backyards. We want to keep this certain look. We don't want, you know, quote unquote, trailer park trash here, you know, in the city. We need to keep it classy. And yeah, it felt very like, oh, we're going to take this to increase density. But like one of the um, ADUs that was built from scratch with the architecture and stuff, like I remember this, the real estate agent, because it was a real estate agent that built it on a property she owns. I remember her talking about the process and I was like, oh, okay, so this is going to be affordable. I went and looked up the address and she's charging $1,300 a month for it, for uh, like 600 square feet, mm-hmm. you know? And I was like, so... What 
whatever they were doing and $1,300, I mean, that's what you can pay for an apartment. You know what I mean? So like you have to be really, really, really wanting to live in a tiny space and pay that much money, you know, to be living in somebody else's backyard. And so it's, it's, it does seem like there is, there's, there was definitely some interest in increasing density because Raleigh is such a happening place now. It's called, someone called it the um, Silicon Valley of the East, you know, but again, Mm -hmm. who is it for, you know, and as Mm -hmm. long as we have these antiquated ideas of, of people who are unhoused and what that looks like, you know, there's a, there was um, an executive director of a nonprofit who I spoke to about a month ago and she was talking about how she was about to be evicted because the property that she lives on, um, the home that she lives in, the property management company switched without her knowing she didn't have a lease, you know, a traditional lease with the last company. And so when they switched, they were like, well, you need to sign a lease. And it was totally different than what she had been doing. And so she went to an organization for help and they told her they couldn't help her because she didn't have a lease, even though they had the ledger payments that showed that she had been paying when she went to another organization, another organization that's supposed to help with rental payments. It was, oh, well, we can't help you. You don't have a lease. And so there are like a lot of little things that keep people from getting the help they need. And she's an executive director of a nonprofit who, you know, she lost her job earlier this year you know, just struggling herself. Her nonprofit is not one of these big ones that get a whole lot of government funding. They're struggling every day, but is, but the beauty of it is that it is in the community and it's working with the community and having the tough conversations and hearing the complaints and stuff like that. And so just for, um, but it's also part-time, you know, it's not anything she could do full-time and have an income that would sustain her in the midst of building. And so we don't understand people's stories when it comes to people who are unhoused, you know? And until we do, and we stop looking at people as less than because of their financial situation, then it's gonna be a really hard road to fight. And I mean, and I say this sitting on the the homelessness task force here, and for four months straight, I've been saying we've been living out of our car. For four meetings straight, I've been saying we've been living out of our car. And at the same time, one of the the director of our affordable housing unit for Wake County has said, we have millions of dollars. We partner with developers and landlords. We have millions. We have millions. We have plenty of money. We have plenty of money. And yet not any of them thought, wow, you know, we need to put Mama Kai in housing. We need to put her in charge of getting this set up, you know, so we can actually address this and do something about it. And then it hit me after last month's meeting is that if you eliminate homelessness, her job is gone. You know, like there starts the path of her having to find a different career. And that's what really kind of one of one of um, the things that has that continues to sit in the back of my head is that one of the barriers to eliminating homelessness is not even is not even people who don't like homelessness is that we have an industry, we have a system that it requires people to be unhoused and food insecure in order for others to be housed and food secure. Mm -hmm. And I think that is the biggest barrier that we face. It sort of reminds me of the healthcare industry. Right. They're not really caring about it. Right. (laughs) 
But, but any 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 system that's created is not gonna is not going to eliminate itself, right? The the primary goal becomes the the perpetration of the system, right? And we don't. Right. Go ahead. I've, I've had I've had several cardiologists on this show who've talked about being reprimanded by their department heads for not making enough money because they're helping people avoid surgery. They're helping people, you know, reverse disease. Yeah. And they're not taught that so even, they, right? When they go to school, they're taught how to prescribe medication, right? They're not taught preventative measures, you know, and that's a, a huge thing unless you go into like a, become a naturopath physician or something like that. But still, and yet in order to get your MD, you, you have to still go through that whole process of, of, of indoctrination, really, you know? Right. Well, and, and indoctrination is is partly about what's possible, but it's it's about the boundary around what's possible. Right. So can we can we jump to those that two point three three acres with ten lots, one primary and two ADUs, and can you just tell us what it in 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 your imagination what it could look like? So. I see that we are, I see that there is, um, there's these things that I learned about. We had this event a couple of weeks ago in July. Um, it was hosted by an architecture firm called NC2 Studios here in Raleigh. And it was this, um, it was this, it, they, it was a series called Real Matter. And they had, a, they had seven different speakers in a 10 day period. And most of them were architects that came from different places ar around the country. And we actually had one from Mexico. It was a female architect from Mexico um, in this series. And, but one of the people who spoke talked about um, these structures called Quonset huts. It's Q-U-O-N-S-E-T. And I had never heard of it. But when I saw it, I was like, oh, my gosh. That's exactly what we need here. We need Quonset. <laughs> he said where mm -hmm. he's at, you know, he's becoming known as the Quonset Hut King. And I told him, I said, well, I might just be the Quonset Hut King because that's what we need here in, in Raleigh. <laughs> and so uh, can you describe yeah, it? They actually started during, I think he said World War Two. And um, when I looked it up, it is it looks like an old bunker, like the semicircle with um it's just a like a half circle above the ground and the other half would be underneath, you know. But what was so fascinating about it is how they devised the space to be usable. So the whole thing was completely usable. Um, and I just thought um, one of the other speakers talked about how when they designed, they tried to design with nature in mind. And so, and this, it's, it stands out to me because the place that we're staying in, it has a stone floor. And when we're in there, it's, it's, you know, the temperature school. And they told me that there's no air conditioning, but that was, it was mm. built that way. So the back part of the house is partially underground. Um, the floor is stone. So in the winter, there's these huge windows that capture the sun, warm up the floor and keep it, you know, rel a rel at a relatively warm temperature. But in the summer, the stone stays cool. 
you know, um, because mm-hmm. of the canopy of trees, <laughs> you know, the sun is 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 not coming in as much as it does in the winter when the when the leaves have fallen, you know. And so with these Quonset huts, I see um, the this particular 2.33 acres, it doesn't have a lot of trees. So I can see these Quonset huts with um, with skylights to bring in the sun, you know, to help them, um, you know, capture the heat once again. And if necessary in the wintertime, you know, to have it so that they're they can close. But to have two accessory dwelling units um, on the property and I see maybe um, someone who is special needs in one but is looking to be self-sustaining. And so it's just a small structure that they don't, that has everything that they need without being overwhelming to like keep clean and to live in. And then maybe in the other structure, there would be um, someone who's, who's active, but elderly. And so there's a family Hmm. in the, in the larger structure, the Quonset hut. And then there is um, these other two individuals and they become like a family, even just within that one lot. You know, but then being part of the larger lot, the larger um, community of homes, you know, you have all types of people with their needs being met. You know, a lot of times our elderly end up in silos. Um, We have so much senior housing going up, affordable senior housing going up, which is great. But once you get in there, you know, people think that they're going to connect with one another. And they often end up siloed where, you know, they're still they still want to be active. They don't just want to hang around other old people. You know, <laughs> like That's yeah. the reality. Yeah. Um, but they if they have somebody right there on the property that they can call on, they have people that are, you know, they can communicate with. They have not just other elderly people, but perhaps children, ho- mostly children, because I want the family, um, the Quonset huts to be for families in particular. And I think it's going to be it would be sustainable because most people are most families are used to living in hotel rooms, which are only so large. Even if you have a, um, a, a room with two double beds, I've seen families sleep in a room with one double bed and the kids are on the floor, you know, either on an air mattress or mm-hmm. sleeping bags or something along those lines. So I just see this as a sustainable community where everybody's working together, that there's um that we may not use all 10 lots for um for these Quonset huts but we would take maybe the center lot there would be like four um four lots on either side and then the center there would be like more com- like a community center where people can come together do communal you know community meals um with like a commercial kitchen the kids can come there to be tutored you know, and it becomes its own little self-sustaining community. That's where, you know, our elders can go for their, you know, if they ha- want to have group activities, um, but there would be a class, there would be classrooms there or a meeting room, a gathering space for people to come together and be community and also would be the main structure where there would be a, um, where the community garden would be behind so that they got all, whatever's not being grown personally, it would be it would be there, you know? Gotcha. So I want to come back to the community garden, but there's a couple of things I'm mm-hmm. hearing here in this model. And my, my head is around this because I'm working on an article for, for Food Revolution on companion mm. planting, yeah. right? Like, like, you know, corn, beans, and squash all support each other. And it's, I'm hearing like companion planting in these individual lots, mm-hmm. right? And last time we talked, you talked about 
what it was like to try to get services as the person being served. Like there's people who are helping and people who are getting helped. And it's a very clear division and it's, and there's, there's, uh, there's a huge inequality in it. And what I hear you talking about here is it's unclear who's helping whom, right? There's an active person. There's a person with some disabilities. There's families with children who need care. The children can kind of enliven the lives of, of elders. It, like it gets very confusing. You're not really sure, like, you know, who's, you know, who's the hero and who's being, who's being rescued, right. which is beautiful. Yeah. And people get to explore like who they are and share their gifts and talents. And we should all be, you know, be able to be superheroes. That's why I call, you know, like when I talk about my son and I talk about the, the three top lessons I've learned from him. The first thing is that his name is wisdom, but I've learned that we are all wisdom. That's where we came from. Um, we all live, learn what we live and we live what we learn, especially young children when they're in those first you know, three to seven years when their brains are really fertile and it is just fertile ground that every seed that is thrown on it grows. It takes hold and it grows, you know. And as a parent, mm -hmm. we have to kind of do the pruning externally and and, and kind of help because some of those things, they, they take hold and they don't go away, you know. And so, but we get to, you know, create the boundaries and, and help. And, um, and so when you have these experiences where you bring people together who are wisdom, then you you get just you can only get beauty, you know. But the other thing about that I talk about is that all all children are superheroes because they can change their identity based on who they're around. So we want to create a community where everybody is safe, where everybody feels loved and welcomed and useful, you know. Um, and that they are, they are, they are living their lives full of purpose and that they're getting and receiving, you know, that they can empty their well, but they know they can do that safely because they know at the same time it's being filled, you know, and we don't, mm. we really don't have that. Like either you're emptying yourself and you empty, empty, empty to the point of exhaustion. And then you end up in a state of you know, depression, a lot of times you end up in a state of, um, of just disgust, frustration, you know, and it, we all should have this opportunity to have a fullness to our lives, you know, from giving and receiving. Yeah. I mean, the, the other thing that I'm hearing about this structure is there's, there's a way in which our capitalist society puts us in competition with one another, whether, whether you mean for it to happen or not. Um, and that you're, you're really subverting that in, in this community. And I'm, I'm just, I'm thinking about like what this could look like. And I'm drawing a little bit on my own experience of co-housing, which is not nearly the same, but it's got, it's got some similarities around things owned in common and communal meals and community, you know, cleanup and garden days. And I remember, you know, when we were, we had just moved in and we heard about Katrina in New Orleans, like everybody came together and packing up things that we thought would be useful. Um, that when I think about that and then think about our neighbors who are living in these McMansions, you know, 5,600, 5, 5, 6,000, 7,000 square feet, lonely as fuck. <laughs> 
like, like I'd pay more to, to live in a community, you know, in a community where I am valued, known, taken care of. Someone's got my back. I've got someone else's back. Like that feels like a much more human way to live. Absolutely. And I, and I draw some of this from um, the blue zones. Like relationships mm. are such a huge part of, you know, the like, the longevity. And um, that was one of the, I think they have nine pillars. And so, but also Dr. Bruce Perry, he talks about um, in the conference that I attended last year was virtual. <clears throat> It was um, the power of research to inform policy. There were a couple of things in there that he said that stick out to me. One he said is that there that privilege, that true privilege is to grow up in a low trauma environment with predictable, you know, relatively predictable experiences, hmm. you know, so you can learn how to re regulate your nervous system like that is privilege, you know. And something that you said about, you know, people in the McMansions, one of the things that I realized in this experience that we're having is that the privilege of what we currently call privilege is usually people that have a lot of money. And the only thing that I have found mm -hmm. privileged about that is that people who live in those situations generally have enough money to hide their trauma and not have to address it. <laughs> You know what I mean? Right. And then, yeah. And then their Gen Z kids have enough money to get therapy. Right. <laughs> right. And usually don't because they don't want that stigma, you know? <laughs> and so mm. until they are, you know, away from mom and dad, you know, and they're living in a life. But like, that's one of the things with Raleigh right now. We have, we have a huge uptick in this desirability for bars and, you know, and we've had, neighbor one particular neighborhood um glenwood south has been transformed with the amount of bars they have and the citizens come to almost every city council meeting complaining about the noise and the violence and the um how they've talked with the police and how the police have sent out send out you know they double the amount of officers in that area between one and three in the morning because that's when they've had the most incidents and how there's you know gun violence and things like once one resident created a shirt that said, I went to Glenwood South and survived. Like, <laughs> you know, mm. and it's because all these young people are out there dealing with their traumas with alcohol, you know, and we commune around trauma nowadays, you know, and we don't even realize it. And so having something where you have community, the blue zones is definitely something that in, that influence. But that is also, again, something that Dr. Perry talks about is how one of the things that they realized is that in the past, it was when there was a high trauma situation involving a parent and a child, they would remove the child. And what they found out is that having a child in a high trauma situation, especially within like the first few years, and removing, moving them to a low trauma situation, it didn't change their, the impact of their brain development very much. Like it, mm -hmm. it very, it was very, he had all these different measurements of being in high trauma, staying in high trauma, being in high trauma, moving to low trauma, 
being in low trauma and then moving to high trauma, like over, um, and that, those, that initial trauma was just like within the first year and being in low trauma and staying in low trauma and being in high trauma at the beginning of your life. And whether you left or you stayed, the difference, the numbers were not that, were not that distinct, even, but mm. in, in even talking about having low trauma in your early years and moving to a high trauma situation, you are better off than being in a high trauma situation and moving into a low trauma situation just because of relationship. And so when they were taking these children out of these high trauma situations, they weren't taking into consideration the whole child and some healthy relationships they had that they were removing them from. And so that was impacting them negatively when they left that situation and went into another environment. And so he talks about how important the relational piece is, even in being able to deal with trauma as a, as a child. And he said, the thing that we need is to provide services for families, um, for the whole family that we're addressing trauma on all levels, you know, and that really resonated, you know, with me about how we say that we want to help children, but we make things so difficult for parents. You know, we say mm -hmm. that we want yeah. to, and that, and that a lot of times there's so many services for children, but the parents were left behind. And so there's even some, I would say jealousy that the parents didn't get that treatment when they were young or they had that treatment, but didn't have the support to be able to move in the direction of their greatness. You know what I mean? And so that makes it, um, that makes it something that's, that I wanted to combat so that there is family support, that we are addressing the different needs that are in our society and that we are bringing people together who want to be together and that can support one another that they can feel good about where they're at, they can feel safe, and that their traumas don't define them. They actually empower them. So let's talk about how the garden connects to all this, the physical garden, because there's, you know, there's a lot of talk about sort of entrepreneurship and, you know, bringing entrepreneurship into traditionally marginalized communities and and there's a lot of value in that and yet a lot of entrepreneurship is still kind of you know smoke and mirrors around like it's not actually creating value but a garden like you you want you put something in the ground that that is like tiny and didn't cost anything practically and it grows into you know 40 pounds of tomatoes or, you know, 10 gallons of squash soup or like there, there's, there's, there's something about participating in that, that kind of, I think, grounds you in, in, in some sort of fundamental um, abundance that I, I, I hear echoed when, when every time you talk to me, you say it's another, you know, amazing day in paradise. Like, does that come from the garden at some, at some level? Absolutely. Um, I don't remember who said it, but somebody said, you know, we are nature and we spend so little time in it. You know, we're in these glass and concrete, you know, structures all day that take away from our energy, essentially. 
Um, we don't, we wear shoes all the time. We're afraid of stepping on rocks and grass and dirt, you know, and things of that nature. But we are nature and we are essentially fighting against it. I just recently heard somebody say it when you fight against, it was in the movie, it was in the need to grow. I was just rewatching it. Somebody said, when you fight against nature, nature will always win. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, it's true. But when we learn to, co- to coexist with nature, like, when you nurture a garden, you're nurturing yourself. There's, I don't know how you can put something in the ground and, you know, like you said, watch it grow and not be moved by the experience that you had to help that come to pass, you know? And there is, there's just something about, um, it was, also in the movie The Need to Grow and also I've gotten that this from also Goodness Lover because I'm really big about um, the importance of our microbiome that ecosystem mm-hmm. that's within our gut and how that connects to our vagus nerve which connects to our brain and how just what we put into our bodies what we eat is such a huge huge um, factor in our behavior you know, like being mindful of what my son has eaten on those days when things were the most tough and we had the least amount of money and junk food was the was the best option, you know, being unhoused. That was something, you know, I was always mindful that, OK, when he eats this, he might get crazy because this processed food is going to hit his system in a way that is not that may alter his his personality, you know, and so mm. many of us don't realize it. I remember in the movie, The Need to Grow, just talking about, um, I wish I could remember his name, but he talks about how, how few people actually are able to go outside, cut a stalk of lettuce, you know, cut a head of lettuce and that milky white, there's this milky white substance that comes out at the end. This is when it is most nourishing and how few, few people get the opportunity to eat it just from the ground like that you know, Mm. and the difference that that is going to make in somebody's life to change their microbiome so that they can, they can have health. They can look forward to health. They can look forward to beating all the predicted health disparities, you know? Um, And just to see like the colors that can come from the different varieties of things that you can grow, you know? Um, I remember being at someone's home and um, there was a little garden in the back that somebody else, they were using um, the guard. Somebody else was using the space in the backyard to create a garden. And there were pumpkins growing back there. And the, I said, I was watching um, these two children that lived there and my son. And they were like, you know, the one child, he came in on his, on his tablet and with his headphones on, wasn't even engaging with the other two kids. I was like, we're taking a 30 minute break because I, we got to get outside, you know? And the little boy was like, we went and looked at the garden that's in his backyard that he's at every single day. And he was like, there's pumpkins out here. Mind you, these are full grown pumpkins. These are like little pumpkins. These are full grown <laughs> pumpkins out here that he had never even noticed. You know, and I was like, well, these look like they, you know, they could use some water. Why don't we go in and we get some water and we can water them? And he was so engaged in it. You know, he was like, 
so excited. The other, the my son and one of the other little boy, they were playing with chalk on the sidewalk, you know, and stuff like that. But this other little boy, he was like, wow, he's like, there's pumpkins back here. You know, he's like, oh, and there's tomatoes. And, you know, whether he ate them or not, didn't matter. But his fascination and his they were starting some of the leaves were starting to wither. And so just his his desire to want to see it grow and to stay alive and by adding water to it. I mean, we have the tidiest, sorriest little pictures of water to be able to water them. But we were able to do so. And you know, just having that experience was so beautiful because we remind ourselves of the innocence of childhood and how, you know, they were brought here to save the world. You know, if he just for him to want to save those little plants, you know, that were withering in the sun was such a beautiful experience, you know, that that can't be compared to very to many other things, you know. But if we give our children that opportunity and then we don't just feed them whoops, with um with good words, but we feed them with good food, just the potential that we could have for such a different world, you know, for them to not to live up to their fullest potential because they have the very best going inside of them, you know, to start mm. with. So gardening yeah. is, it's extremely important to, to me and, and also just to have that accessibility of food and for people to realize that, yeah, you can just go outside and eat. You know, <laughs> you know, you don't mm -hmm. have to drive 10 minutes to the grocery store. You don't have to, um, you don't have to, you don't have to drive 10 minutes to the grocery store. You don't have to open a plastic package or anything like that. You know, you just go outside and you eat and it's an amazing, amazing gift. Yeah. I remember, I can't remember which book, but it was one of the, uh, Daniel Quinn Ishmael mm -hmm. books. Um, where he, where he, the, 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 the mentor basically says the human civilization started when a bunch of people put the food under lock and key. Mm. Cause before then you couldn't compel anyone to do anything. Mm. Wow. <laughs> it was, it was only, it was only when people had to dance for their food that you could, you know, call a tune tell them how far to, how much to dance, how high to jump. That's empower that's powerful. And that's exactly what we see today is that we've had to become beggars for the very for things that are free, you know, like the land, you know, food. It grows abundantly even if we don't cultivate it. If a seed is thrown into a ground, very often, you know, it'll grow into something, you know, without even being tended just mm -hmm. because that's what nature does. And so it's really quite fascinating how, um, yeah, once you put it in a store and, and lock it up and make it inaccessible to people, you know, and even that it's, mm -hmm. it's crazy that you should even say that because I also think about all the people who um, like to dumpster dive. You know, all these businesses throw away perfectly good products, throw away perfectly good food, you know, and if you go to dumpster dive for it, you end up, you can get arrested because they don't want, the companies don't want that, you know, they don't want their, their stuff taken, but they won't give it away either. You know, so it's like, yeah, I, I have to, I have to admit that we really got into dumpster diving. It was just so much more fun than shopping. Absolutely, because you get like all these treasures and stuff we, like that. We started doing it just, um, we had chickens. 
And so we'd walk past the dumpsters behind like the Whole Foods in Durham. And there would be like, oh, the, all these wilted greens, like, oh, the chickens would love these. So we started coming like with garbage bags at night. And then we'd see, well, below the, below the greens, there's like 45 pounds of apples that are bruised. That, right? And then, oh my gosh. And why did they throw out like an entire, oh, the, the case of olive oil was like two days past due. Right. And so we started looking into like, why isn't this food getting used intelligently? And there's, there's like, you know, fear of lawsuits. Like if somebody gets sick from it, um, Whole Foods actually was trying to be zero waste. And so they had somebody come from, um, you know, one of the recycling companies might have been uh, Brooks Contracting and, and weighed it and they were getting credits. So they would rather the things go into compost than get eaten by the community because they, because of, you know, basically an accounting pro protocol they put into place to show how green they were. Wow. Yeah, money generally is the a very big motivating factor. Yeah. But like honestly, yeah. I feel like our, the biggest challenge that we have is that we have a lot of people doing things that they really don't want to do. You know, like when I think about one of the things I was thinking about is just this idea of how we get um, people who are working in um, the homeless industry to transition. And when I went to the conference in D.C., um, that's where I was at when I took the escalator, you know, <laughs> when we were in graduation. Um, I remember talking to people and like. I would ask, like, one of my big questions is, like, what does your dream life look like? And the people that I talked to that were working in, you know, services that were addressing homelessness, their dream lives had nothing to do with working in social services forever. You know, they had other projects mm -hmm. they were either working on or wanted to work on. And I think we've just we've created this society where. People have thought that, like, this is the way to be. This is the way to live. Like, you have to have money. Somebody, I remember also somebody saying, um, like, they came to America and they're like, America is just like a big shopping mall. You know, like, everywhere that's built, you know, this, this, the housing that's being built is luxury and there's always stores beneath it. We want walkable communities where people don't have to walk very far to get what they need. No, we want people to walk far so they can stay healthy. You know, <laughs> like, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And so it's just really, it's really fascinating, but we have to give people an option of doing something different. And I think if we started asking people that question, if we started at the top with a CEO and said, you know, what does your dream life look like? Are you, you know, are you living it? And more than likely, because they're making so much money. Have you heard of the studies that say that people who make a lot of the like, there's a certain cap and how much you can make where happiness and monetary value are synonymous. But beyond that point, like the more you make, the less happy you are or something like that. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. There are studies, you know, <laughs> like you were saying, McMansions and they're miserable. You know, those are equitable. Those are those those equal one another. And I was just like, it's it's not because of the house is not because of the money. It's because people don't have a purpose. That's what it is. Mm. People lack purpose when they get there because they feel like they've accomplished everything and yet they feel miserable inside because they haven't actually they haven't actually arrived to who they are in their purpose. 
just what was expected of them. Yeah. Well, I think that's, you know, I just um, published last week an interview with Philip Shepard, who writes about embodiment. Mm -hmm. And for him, the central problem with humanity is the split between the mind and the body with the mind thinking it has to tell the body what to do. And he said that that relationship is our primary relationship and every other relationship between people, between countries, between us and nature follow that template of I need you to do what I want you to do because I don't trust you to, to do good on your own. So, you know, there's the, the entire, you know, criminal justice system is based on the idea and the entire educational system and the job market is based on the idea that people won't do what's good for all unless they have no choice. And, and the, we have carrots and sticks to, to move them in the right direction. And really you're, you're talking about um, a revolutionary step back from that so that people can really have the space to, to discover their gifts and share them joyfully. Yeah. That's so funny because it makes me think of all the times that my son tells me I'm bossing him around. He's like, you're just bossing me around. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> I don't say, you know, I'm like, okay, well, this is what our, this is what we have to get done today. This is what I've got going on, blah, blah, blah. And he'll be like, uh, that's not what he wants to do. That's not his agenda. You know, positive <laughs> around. And I was like, you know, you're right. I didn't ask you, you know, I just made this plan and, you know, let's figure out what we are going to do together today, you know? And so parenting, I will say is the problem, but it's also the solution. And so that's what it makes me think of is, yeah, you know, my, my responsibility towards my son is to help him discover his gifts and his passions. And it was funny because for the longest time he said he wanted to be a police officer, you know, but then he found out about guns and hurting people and possibly getting hurt. And then he was like, he wants to be a firefighter now, you know, or EMT, but he wants to help mm. people. And then like, there was another level of, of discovery. And he was just like, you know what? I think I just want to be myself, you know, <laughs> like people ask him what he wants to be uh -huh. when he grows up. He's like, I think I just want to be myself, you know? <laughs> and I was like, yeah. <laughs> and so his passion is emergency vehicles and cars and, you know, and so many people don't, they get siloed into, no, this is how you have to be. This is, you know, you're in the family business. Like imagine what the food revolution network would be like, or if it would even have come to be if John Robbins didn't follow his passion and not follow down the billion dollar mm -hmm. path that was already laid for him, you know, with ice cream, you know? And so, yeah. We have this incredible, we have this incredible opportunity to meet people where they're at and help them to discover or to at least unleash their God given gifts. And I think I know that, uh, that this, that being unhoused has helped me to realize that because whenever I would talk about the things, whenever I would go in for services and stuff and they're like, you know, well, do you work? And I'm like, yeah, I'm a mom. That's my most important career. You know, and I would, they would say, well, you know, no, well, what kind of job do you want? I was like, well, I want to start this business and this is what I want it to do and stuff like that. And they're like, I remember one lady saying, well, you can't do that. You know, you can, you have to work on that at night. And I was just like, hmm, cause that's what she had to do. And she was like, yeah, you know, I understand what yeah. you're saying. Cause you know, I have this business and I had, but I had to do it at night and you know, and now it's doing this and stuff like that. And I was just like, and like for people to continue, the thing that is insanity to me is that we know that small businesses fuel America. 
right? We know that that is the foundation of what keeps it going, regardless of what the big companies are doing. People going into business and creating viable businesses that add service and value to our community is really important. And what, yet, instead of, um, my son just came out. Here, come on. It's okay. Come on. Get under the blanket with me. And so, um, instead of helping people to discover those talents, monetize them and learn how to live off of that, you know, we, we force them into jobs that we know are not going to pay them enough to build credit, to be able to pay rent, to be able to pay bills. And we expect things to change, you know, like one of the biggest things Mm -hmm. that like hit me in the last probably six months or so is just how much money um, is speculated the African-American community spends every year, you know, trillions of dollars. And yet we're always talking about how so many of us are in poverty, you know, and I was just like. Mm -hmm. It's not that we don't know how to make money. We hustle all the time. I know what I've done to hustle, you know, the legal stuff, you know, I've I created a gratitude journal and, you know, I've created gift baskets and, you know, all sorts of things to 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 sell. But I wasn't ever able to to scale that and create a business out of it um, so that it could become a viable income for me and my son, you know. And I was like, if only mm-hmm. somebody had seeing the vision that I had and, and put forth the money and, and the, not just the money, but put forth the um, education that I needed, you know, connected me to the right people mm-hmm. so that I could build the network that I'm now finally building that I didn't know I needed to build, you know, we would be mm-hmm. in a totally different position, but I'm so grateful. Yeah. Part of it. Um, but I'm so grateful for this journey that I've been on. Because now I know what needs to be done in order to help people to start from scratch. What's kind of support they need in order for them to get to the life that they want, you know, and because of where what we've been through, I know what needs to happen differently, you know, and Mm. so that's what I'm striving to do. Mm. It's so powerful. Thank you. Yeah. So thank you so much. Oh, let's make sure it sounds like uh, sounds like wis- wisdom wants his mama. Yes, wisdom wants his mama. He was sleeping well, well when this started. So, uh, so, <laughs> so I'm gonna let you go. Thank you again and all. Oh, hey there. Uh, hi. <laughs> And for folks who want to follow you, I know I'll, I'll put up your uh, business, online business card in the show notes again, but remind us of the, your Instagram. It is love. Um, it's l.u.v.enterprises presents LLC. I figure I've got to shorten that at some point, but right now that's what it is. Yeah. And it's probably the best way to find me. Um, or you can just Google um, l.u.v.enterprises presents. And most of my, my blog is under that. My Facebook page is under that. Um, my Instagram is under that. And so most people in my YouTube channel, they're all under that, um, same handle. So people can definitely. Okay. L, L, so love L U V with dots mm-hmm. in the middle enterprises presents. Mm-hmm. presents. 
So probably any any combination of two of those. Yes, we should be able to find me. Help people fi- find you. One or way Mama or Kai. I guess if you can Google Mama Kai, you'll find some. You might find me too. M O M M A K A I. Awesome, awesome. I'll put I'll throw links to that in the show notes. And it's lovely connecting with you again. Thank you so much for taking the time for getting up early and sharing the beautiful nature from uh, the Western North Carolina with me. Thank you so much. And Ken, I just want to say thank you to you. Um, I've, I had a lot of people reach out to me when the first interview aired and um, we're actually staying in this home because of that interview. Somebody reached out, they were going to be out of town and they're like, would you like to come and stay for a week? And I was like, yeah. And so there was another person who reached out and said, I love what you're doing. You know, I didn't know. I, I thank you so much for sharing this with me. Um, someone that we had met a couple of years ago, um, when we had stayed in a, an emergency shelter, ha- she said that they had, they've been wondering how we were doing and stuff like that. And so I'm in the process of reconnecting with that person who actually is a doctor. Um, and so hmm. there have been a lot of wonderful things and even people who haven't seen, um, the video have watched, have read what you wrote. And so there's been just a lot of so much positive feedback from what you from what you allowed me to share. And so I just want to say thank you for this platform and for being even being interested. It's a it's seriously been a, a huge gift for us. Oh, wow. That's awesome <laughs> to hear. Because I, I don't actually know that anybody watches or listens. I don't I don't check. So, so that's that's a gift to me right there. Yeah, it's having a huge impact. And. So, yeah, I just want to say thank you. I really appreciate it. And it is it, it and it's giving people an opportunity to get to know me from a totally different um, outlet. So I'm I'm extremely hmm. grateful and very honored to have been here. Wow. Music to my ears. <laughs> thank you. Well, let's, let's let's keep it going. So, uh, you know, hit me up whenever you got something new you want to share. I will definitely do that. We'll, we'll keep making it happen. <laughs> All right, and I and I'll probably be back in town uh, end of October. Okay, cool. If you're around, we got we, we got to meet Definitely. up. Definitely, I look forward to that. <laughs> Me too, Mama Kai, Carolyn Sanders. Thank you so much for all you're doing and for taking the time thank today. Thank you again. It's greatly appreciated. Okay. We're out. <laughs> and thank you, thank you, Wisdom, for sharing your mom. I wasn't really here when you guys even started because you were. On here for, a, for 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 about for an hour, and you're about to get to an hour and ten minutes. <laughs> we are. It's true. That's true. That's true. We're, it's um, it's an extra special episode. More than and an you hour. get to star in it for a little bit. <laughs> yep, and you're there. I guess. <laughs> well, thank you, Howie. Can we can we move can we move the camera so you're both in the, you're both in the shot. All right, I'm gonna try to grab this screen grab yeah. if that's all right. If, if, if I can, wisdom, you okay? You, you okay? Be, being having your picture in the in the show. <laughs> Sweet, awesome. All right, have a Thanks, great day. You too. In yes, absolutely. You too. Enjoy creating it. Okay. Bye. <laughs> and that's a wrap. So not much movement lately. My back got cranked. I played in an ultimate tournament on artificial turf on Saturday, played two games, 
and my feet were killing me and my back was killing me. And apparently at the age of 58, I now have the maturity to not play the third game <laughs> to say, hey, I'm done here. And I woke up on Sunday morning with uh, raging plantar fasciitis and uh, a back that was uh, makes me kind of look like a, uh, a comma. So I've been working on that. I've returned to a plantar fasciitis prevention in this case, healing and then prevention routine that involves lots of heel raises and stretches and going to prioritize um, strengthening the core. I have a friend here who is a Pilates teacher who might be helping me out. I could look for a couple of gyms as well and follow Philip Shepard's advice from Deep Fitness and start to, to work those inner muscles as well. Right now, I'm just taking it easy. I have been watching lots of paddle videos on YouTube, starting to understand the difference between paddle and the three racket sports that I have played, squash, racquetball, and tennis. So looking forward to uh, getting be able to get back on the court for that. Um, otherwise, again, a lot of requests to talk more about life in Spain, and I'm going to do that. And also um, next week, I believe, if it works out, my friend, the very good Dr. Glenn Livingston, is going to be interviewing me about my coaching, about how I coach people, how I help people change their lives, um, achieve um, radical transformation. My coaching has itself undergone some radical transformation over the past year, and I'm looking forward to sharing those perspectives with you. All right, that's it for this week. As always, be well, my friends.